This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, July 26, 2018. I'm Caleb Brown. Government data collection about Americans is troubling, but the data about us that is routinely collected by the private sector confers a great deal of power to those who might make use of information contained in data leaks. Charles Fane Lehman, author of a new essay at libertarianism.org, argues that big data leaks drive the democratization of disciplinary power. We spoke about the implications earlier this month. I read your essay at libertarianism.org, and I thought it was interesting. But if you look at just the headline and just the graphic, you would think, oh, he's talking about the National Security Agency or the FBI or other agencies of government that routinely collect and uh, at certain points might make use of data that they've collected on us. But of course, that's not what you're talking about. You're talking about the entirety of the private sector that routinely collects and aggregates data about uh, anyone in the world, uh, particularly our consumer habits and our browsing habits and that sort of thing. So walk me through just the broad strokes of of what uh, the general thrust is. Mm -hmm. So I think this, this piece began with I think one disturbing insight, which is I know pe- many people will have fallen on. Everybody will remember the leaking of data held by Equifax, which is a credit rating firm, I think late, late last year. Uh, and part of what happened with the Equifax hack is that something like half of all Americans' social security numbers associated to their names were leaked to uh, – were, were stolen. Um, And what that means in practice is that the social security number, which is essentially your unique identifier, is no longer a valid form of identifying you as yourself. Half of all Americans, we can no longer trust that the social security numbers are meaningful. Um, And these kinds of hacks happen all the time. And what I think we need to take away from that is the insight that there's a there's a scale of data available about us now today. There are ways in which we are being defined, delimited, and specified, which were not previously possible even 10 years ago, that we live in a completely different regime. And that so when something like the Equifax hap, hack happens, it isn't just sort of a passing uh, moment. It isn't just a a uh, sort of interesting fact that what's really going on there is that there's been a substantial change in the way that we are the kind of information that we are gathering about people and the and the big thrust of my argument is that uh not only is there new information, but with that new form of information comes a new form of power and that people are able to exercise power over one another. And people can mean, of course, the state, but it can also mean corporate actors and it can also mean, as I argue, individual malintentioned actors. By virtue, They're all able to exercise power over other people by virtue of the knowledge that we are, have collected about ourselves. Um, so one of one of the things that my mind goes to immediately is the degree to which, for example, like credit card companies are acutely aware of your financial habits, uh, in particular your likelihood of paying a bill on time or maybe a couple of days late, and uh, what kind of uh, products you would respond to uh, to help people make it easier for people to make choices about debt that, frankly, may not be the best choice for them. Right. And I think, you know, in, in there's a good argument that says that's one of the more mundane applications that 
large firms can not only predict accurately our preferences but affirmatively shape our preferences by taking advantage of our our innate uh, sort of t some of our innate irrationalities that I can target the gambler and say, hey, if I advertise to this guy for gambling services, he's going to bite even though it isn't necessarily good for him. I don't think that there are a lot of documented instances of that happening. Um, but it is certainly the case that firms like governments are able to shape our behavior. Part of the reason that this essay is focused on credit rating as a concept is because the affirmative goal of credit rating going back to, back to its, its, its early history, and I talk about this in the piece, its early history up through the 1970s, 1980s is the creation not merely of factual statements about people, but there's really a moral omission associated. The idea that if we can track people's conduct, their behavior, we can shape them into more moral persons uh, and and or control what their actions are by positive and negative incentives associated with this kind of information. So how are people able to make themselves aware of this kind of aggregation? I mean, obviously, when I go online and I buy something at Amazon, minutes later and, and days, sometimes weeks later, I see ads on various non-Amazon websites saying, hey, why don't you buy this thing that you just bought? That, that seems a little clunky, but I mean, you're talking about sort of a, uh, a granularity of being able to... Uh, make pitches to people and uh, frame and uh, basically uh, provide a context for the decisions that people are making in which they're, they're maybe blissfully unaware. Right. I think there are two answers there. And I think it's important for understanding both that firms are and, and non-firm actors, you know, again, it isn't just companies, it can be individuals, it can be the state, it can be any of a number of entities because what matters is what they know, not who they are. Um, but for example, if I walk through a store and I have location data on my on on my phone, then uh, the company is able to track where I am in the store with that degree of granularity. And there are instances of people stand in front of a display for a long time, they walk away from the display, and later they're at home and they see a Google ad for the thing that they were looking at in the display because the company knows where they were and it's able to talk to Google or whoever and say, hey, display this to this person because they were in the right place at the right time. Um, so I think a the first thing that matters is awareness. You know, uh, One of my favorite recent examples of this is and, – and awareness becomes easy in instances of sort of absurd forms of uh, targeting. Um, one of my favorite recent examples of this is – uh, Drake put out a new album and Spotify covered its entire front page with information about Drake. And Spotify sort of claims to have this content neutrality recommendation to everybody, which made the whole process so patently absurd because uh, it was clear that they were injecting into their otherwise quote-unquote neutral algorithm this high preference for show everybody Drake to push Drake because that was what was good for their bottom line at the time. Um, but I think that that particular sort of silly example points to the ways that a firm like Spotify does have a great deal of power over uh, what you as – I mean just as a music consumer, what you – choose to consume. There's a recent paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research that said, hey, uh, Spotify's placement of songs in its top 40 country playlist substantially altered people's preferences for which country songs they were consuming. So being aware of the little nudges that firms put in your 
uh, field of view, I think, is very important to define it, to uh, being aware of the ways in which our lives are being shaped by the kind of data that other entities have on us. And the second thing is doing what you can to opt out. It's really and, – and, and those are, those are in a sense, prudential judgments, right? Lots of firms make – will, quote, unquote, pay you for your data. Um, Google will get you to take surveys and they'll give you small perks and in return they'll get great deals of information. I get a – every time I go to a new place, I get a pop of my phone which says, you were just at so-and-so cafe. Would you tell us a little bit more about that? And yeah, how was it? How was this place that you were clearly just at? Precisely. Um, and that's telling me that Google knows where I was. Actually, you can you can go look at your Google Maps history and you can see the hyperfine detail of Google knows exactly where you were at all times based on your phone. Um, and there are, there are perks to that. And I think people have to make their own judgment as to whether or not they want the perks. You know, the the canonical example of this is the huge quantity of data that um, – Cambridge Analytica collected just by getting people to take a Facebook survey and they were you know they, they got people to click on a very mundane link and got huge amounts of kind of, of social network information out of that um, and the, the reason I make that point is you know there, there are there are arguments for giving firms your data but you have to be aware of when you're doing that and there are lots of ways that we can choose to opt out you can choose to turn off location on your phone you can uh, I don't have a Facebook anymore because there was no benefit to it personally and there was a great deal of cost frankly there's a great deal of cost in having to talk to all of my annoying friends who I disagree with on Facebook but also that uh, Facebook is I think frequently particularly pernicious in its uh, not pernicious but negligent in how it handles data. You know, there's been a lot of discussion of Facebook cleaning up after the fact over the past year. Um, and I don't really trust them as a service. And so I don't want them to have access to my data. I can't control everything uh, unless I, you know, go off the grid and stop buying things and use only gold. I'm sure there are maybe even people listening to this podcast who will embrace that. I'm not going to. Um, but there are certainly ways, things that I can choose to do that make it provide less information to the firms that are surveilling me. It seems that if we're if we accept that this is potentially a problem, uh, and I, I think there are some some instances where it's proven to be a, a problem of all this of this data being gathered and people were uh, not witting uh, accomplices in the collection of this data. It also seems like the government is a particularly bad uh, arbiter of what is appropriate and inappropriate with regard to private sector data collection. So what so so what might be the role of government if there should be one? Is it is it just people ought to be aware and keep the government out of it or is there some sort of a standard that ought to re- emerge for uh, how these firms handle your data? So I am reticent to say make any very strong claims about what the state should do because I share the sympathy that, you know, uh, anything that Amazon or Walmart or whatever is doing, the state is able to do at a much bigger and arguably more dangerous scale. I talk in the essay about the surveillance system that exists in uh, Xinjiang in northwestern China where the the minority majority population in 
um, are predominantly uh, they're they're a, they're a oppressed ethnic minority who are predominantly Muslims, and the Chinese government believes that they're all going to be terrorists, and so everybody is surveilled constantly in this totalizing network um, that forces you to have your retina scanned several times a day. I think it's not quite it, but that's essentially it. Um, so anything, you know, I don't want to live in that. I don't think any of us should be forced to live in that. I especially don't think any of us should be forced to live in that, you know, simply because the government happens to be afraid of them. Um, and consequently, I am therefore suspicious, I agree, of, of any particular state action. Um, that said, you know, and of course, any proposal is subject to sort of a criticism of its unintended consequences. I think there are several things that can conceivably happen. One is that uh, the state needs to, can conceivably stipulate these are the sort of data that you're not allowed to collect. It, it, it can take that power away from people and take away from firms and also from people give, take away from people the right to consent to giving up that data. I think a lot of people may be uncomfortable with that. And the other thing is to which in a sense I'm sympathetic to is to simply say some firms are or some non-state actors are innately dangerous because their whole mission is data. Right, so much of the modern economy is built around the aggregation of information about you. Facebook's entire value proposition is more specific specification of who consumers are that they then sell to advertisers. Right, I I am the product of Facebook, and I think we really haven't had a reckoning as a society of what it means to transition from ninety percent. Ninety percent of the population is the primary consumer. To ninety percent of the population is the primary product that is being sold and then sold to. I think it's been a substantial alteration. It's been facilitated by the kind of data that I am talking about, and we haven't really had a, frankly, a democratic conversation about is that how we want to live as a society. Who handles data well uh, of of all these firms? Obviously, Facebook is a, is not a particularly good example, but I hear of you know f- less frequent or perhaps non-existent hacks from companies like Amazon and Google. But um, who does a good job, and and what standards ought to emerge in how uh, companies handle data? I don't have a great answer for that, um, partially because you know one, one of the arguments I make in the in the pieces that all hacks are simply a matter of time and there's a there's an underlying logic where I basically claim that the incentives for hackers are always going to be greater than the incentives for firms that are trying to secure their data. And so there hasn't been a Google leak, but frankly, I suspect there will be a Google leak eventually. There may have been and we don't know about it. Um, I will say I think it's worth at least learning – to go back to the question of what people can do, I think it's worth at least learning about entities that make prioritizing your – personal information uh, security that they that that's one of their main focuses so uh, search engines like duckduckgo which go out of their way not to collect information about you and not to store information about you um, there's a there's an alternative social networking it's sort of a distributed social networking platform called mastodon that's decent on this uh, and no, uh, there are it's a little bit complicated, but it and not everybody's on it, but it's arguably preferable from this perspective to something like Twitter or Facebook. Um, and I think it also matters that we think about who are the platforms that we're using to message. So encrypted messaging is actually really easy. Yeah, I have signal on my phone. I have actually a couple of encrypted messaging apps on my phone. And it's just not that hard to send a text to my friend that I know is going to be deleted in 10 hours and nobody's ever going to read besides me and my friend. Um, 
it's that used to be really hard to do. It's not anymore, and it uptake on that matters. Charles Fane Lehman is author of a new essay at libertarianism.org. The problem is what they know. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 